We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the first 10 verses, and we're going to see this morning a really important lesson, that for us as Christian people, it's in a position of permanent weakness that we'll know permanent strength. It's not that somehow, as you get older as a Christian, you become stronger and no longer need the Lord's help. That you become so strong in faith and so certain of all that you stand on that you you no longer need the Lord's strengthening power. But actually that it's in permanent weakness that you'll know permanent strength from on high. Now God works in our weakness. That was our theme last Sunday morning. God does not need impressive-looking and impressive-sounding people to do his work. Not that he can't use people like that. Not that he doesn't. But he doesn't need people like that to do his work. It doesn't follow that impressive-sounding and impressive-looking people are more likely to bring about results in gospel work. It's not how God works. That's worldly thinking. That's how ungodly people think. You know, you'll sometimes perhaps think to yourself, as you look around what what goes on in the world, that people who who do have looks, uh, people who do seem to have really impressive skills, that they do seem to get on in the world more than others. Well, of course, sometimes that might be for no other reason that people just idolise them because they are good-looking, because they have those kinds of skills. And that's why they get on. But Christians are to have more depth and more discernment than that. The world makes much of physical appearance in assessing people's usefulness or aptitude. But issues like that are irrelevant to God. The world seems to say that if you can groom yourself in a certain way, if you can hone certain types of presentational skills, then you'll make yourself more attractive and amenable to people in order to win them over. Now, of course, it is true Uh, that if you haven't washed or changed your clothes for six months, you might find you're at something of a disadvantage when it comes to getting on with people. I'm not suggesting that being slovenly and dirty and smelly doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But the degree to which the world has taken these things in judging people to be suitable or competent or more likely to get results... That kind of thinking has no place in God's kingdom and in Christ's church. We were reminded, weren't we, just recently in our studies in 1 Timothy on Wednesday evenings when we considered together the qualifications for elders and deacons in church leadership. It's the heart and it's godly character and it's the proclaiming of God's truth that matters. And They are the things that God will use to do his work. Preaching on these chapters, as I've been studying, I came across one preacher who mentioned that the fad in some evangelical circles 
for having celebrity testimonies at gospel events is one example of how churches have caved in to this muddle-headed thinking about needing to have someone impressive. We need someone impressive. A public figure. Someone with an incredible backstory. Someone with an unbelievable turnaround in their circumstances. That person, because of who they are, because of the story they can tell, they are more likely to make an impression. They are more likely to get a response. Someone ordinary simply will not do. Who'd want to listen to them? That is precisely the error in the Corinthian church. But that's not how God works. The Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, some of whom were, were converted under Paul's ministry, are being encouraged by these false teachers who've come in to look at someone like Paul, who was not an impressive-looking man, as the world perceives good looks, was not the obvious candidate by the way the world estimates people, and they were saying, why on earth would you want someone like him? I mentioned it last week. Do you remember, for example, how utterly insulted and disgusted Goliath was when he saw David walking out to meet him? The complete opposite of a crack soldier. Everything that you would want in the man who would challenge Goliath, David was not. You'd have had a big long tick list of all the things you would want. Who are we going to send out to challenge him? And out walks David and you look down your list and there's nothing you can tick. And that's what Goliath thought as David stands in front of him. David was not in any way the kind of man you would expect to send out, except for one thing. And it was the one thing that mattered. David's heart for God. It's the one thing he did have. And it was the only thing he needed. And because that was right, God did the work. And Goliath didn't even get to throw one punch. One stone. One flash of a blade. One severed head held high. Job done. By the most unlikely candidate on Israel's side of the valley. Because that's how God works. Interestingly, we are told that David was a healthy and good-looking man. But on this occasion, that only infuriated Goliath even more. He was expecting, and actually in that kind of situation, the world would expect a hardened, battle-scarred warrior, not the latest face of Farmers Weekly. But you see, God doesn't work the world's way. He doesn't. Are you, are you getting the point? 
God does things different. Now, Paul has an additional and important and helpful piece of instruction for us as he continues writing along the same theme. He hasn't quite finished yet. So please have your Bible open at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, there is a little bit of repetition in some ways here as Paul continues. If you notice any repetition, please don't blame me. I'm not responsible for it. God put it there because he knows we still need to hear it. Uh, Sometimes God repeats himself in Scripture because he knows we're slow to learn. Well, Paul continues in chapter 1, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, he acknowledges that this, uh, this process of boasting about your achievements really isn't what gospel ministry is about at all. And it really isn't his style. And it's not something you'll find him doing. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. However, he's saying, just bear with me on one more issue. Because there's one more topic that we find about these false teachers that David also wants to address. He's probably quite uncomfortable uh, using these kinds of arguments, Paul, but he carries on. We saw the things about which Paul said he would boast in the previous chapter from verses 23 uh, to 28. And it's all about the great things that he has suffered for the cause of the gospel, the floggings, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the, the sleepless nights, the hunger, the thirst, and so on. And he says, which of these false teachers who've come among you can boast of experiences like that? But there's something else that I could boast about, verse 1, and that's visions and revelations. Now, almost certainly, he moves on to this topic because he knows that this issue of visions and revelations is something that these false apostles go on about a lot and that they boast about a lot. Uh, I've seen this, the Lord has spoken to me like this, God has said that, and so on. And these men are able to continually boast about such things. And they will suggest that because they can speak in this way, this is a validation of their ministry and of their authority. Now, Paul, starting at verse 2, is speaking about himself. It becomes clear as you go through. Paul is speaking of his own experience here, but he wants to make the point that whatever experiences a Christian man or woman may have had in the past... These are not things to be brought up over and over again in conversation as if to show to others that you are a somebody in the kingdom of God. Someone who's constantly saying, have I told you about the time when? And they just keep going on about these great experiences that they've had. They come out with all kinds of tales and recollections and experiences which are intended to build themselves up in your eyes and that's why they're telling you it's a kind of spiritual don't you know who I am have you not heard of the dealings that I have had with God and that God has had with me well David can't bring himself to talk that way 
Now, in some Christian circles, many do claim to have such ongoing visions and revelations, and it becomes a prominent feature sometimes in Christian gatherings. It seems to me that that's often done for a variety of reasons. I think for some people, perhaps, they feel they have to say it just to retain their credibility because it seems to be what everybody else does, and so I have to be able to say it too. Or perhaps for others, it can be a way of furthering a personal agenda. But you're left in the position where you cannot possibly criticize them or disagree with them because God has told them and spoken to them. And in its worst form, it's used to exercise power and control and to manipulate people because God has told me this. So you can't disagree or argue. There are some, of course, who genuinely believe that they're engaged in God's work. But often it's not accord at all in, in what Paul is going to reveal to us here about how these things should be handled and used or not used. Now, Paul, you see, he is a man who has been dealt, by, dealt with by God in unbelievable ways. When it comes to visions and revelations, the Apostle Paul has seen and heard things that these false teachers can only begin to dream about. But he never has used it for self-promotion. He never has used it to say, can you see, therefore, how much better than you I am? He's never spoken like that. And you don't find him boasting about it wherever he goes. Indeed, he struggles to even acknowledge that it's him. I know a man in Christ who. And he speaks as if it's someone else he's talking about. And Paul speaks of an occasion, but there were many occasions such as this, because he talks later on about abundant revelations. But he speaks of an occasion early in his Christian walk as Christ himself ministered to him as part of his preparation for his role as apostle and evangelist and missionary to the Gentile world. He can't even be sure to describe it accurately what it was that actually happened. It says that in verses 2 and 3. I found myself in the third heaven. And then later he says, I was in paradise. And so... Most commentators are agreed that what he means by the, the third heaven is this. The Hebrews would often speak of the first heaven as being the sky, the literal sky and earth's atmosphere. And the second heaven is all that lies beyond that in the realm of the stars and the planets, that great universe out there. But the third heaven is not a physical place at all. It's that spiritual realm where God dwells in eternity. A place that is at the same time both nowhere and everywhere. Because it isn't a physical place. It's a spiritual realm. But God is everywhere. So it's a place that's nowhere and everywhere. The third heaven and I was taken up there, says Paul. Was I there physically in this earthly body? 
I'm not certain. Was it my spirit being caught up to heaven? Was it something more akin to a dream? I really don't know. But he was in paradise, in the very presence of God. And there he heard things which he has no human words to express. And even if he could find those words, it's not lawful for him to repeat. Now, this teaching of Paul stands in stark contrasts to many false teachers in every generation who boast of the visions and revelations that they've had of God and they want to tell you all about it. And yet Paul says, no. If you've truly had an experience like that, there are no words to express it and it is not lawful to speak of them. And yet others will boast of these things to try and bolster their authority. But it's completely against what Paul teaches. There was once a man like that, says Paul. But the only Paul that I'm prepared to talk about today is the Paul of today in all of his weaknesses. He frequently tells us he's an apostle but never in a boastful way. But his apostleship is something that we need to be sure about because we need to receive his words as we're supposed to receive them. And so we need that assurance that Paul is an apostle, that his words are the words of God, not his own. Whenever Paul speaks of his apostleship, he nearly always qualifies that by reminding us that he's also a bond slave to Christ and he asks us to accept him and receive him as one who is a bond slave which is the lowest of the low and so we see again this contrast in spirit between Paul and these false teachers who've come in so Paul says I'm prepared to boast of that Paul back then 14 years ago but that was then and note this that's between me and God. And it's not for public consumption. <clears throat> That's important. But what of the Paul of today? The only thing I'm prepared to boast about is all my weaknesses and all of my trials. And even then I don't like boasting about it. But I'm forced to, to try and get this message over to you. He says in verse 6, I could legitimately boast of many such things. I wouldn't be talking foolishly. I'd be speaking the truth. But I forgo all of that. I lay aside any right to boast. Most of us have a natural tendency to get quite touchy if, we're, if we think we're not getting the acknowledgement or the attention that we think we deserve. We tend to get a bit touchy. Or a parent who makes sure that they just happen to drop into the conversation the latest accolade that their child has just been awarded and everybody knows about it because we just have to have the acknowledgement and the attention that we deserve. It's that natural tendency within us to build ourselves up in everyone else's eyes. 
But Paul kicks against this all the time. And he refuses to go this way. I remember quite vividly, almost the day, how completely stunned once I was when I realised that a particular believer who I had known for quite some time was right at the very top of their particular career in the world, respected all around the world. And I had had no idea. Why hadn't I? Because they had never once mentioned it. Oh, by the way, have I told you who I am? Never. Never. By the way, you do realise who you're talking to? No. No. Never. What I knew of them was simply what I had seen in them as a fellow believer and as a Christian. And that was all that mattered to them. That's what Paul's talking about here. That you just see me for who I am. I refrain, the end of verse 6, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. I'm just Paul, the battered, bruised gospel preacher. That's the only Paul you need to know. It's the only Paul I'm ever going to let you see. It's all I am. That's the only thing I have to boast about. Battered and bruised. Pretty ugly. Apparently he was not the most attractive man. Paul. This is me. And those Christian believers, that's the only thing they needed to know about him. They'd loved him once for that. But these false teachers have come in and they've ruined everything. There's no place in the church for self-promotion, self-elevation. And God has done a work in Paul to make sure that never happens. Interesting. God specifically done something to Paul to prevent him from ever inflating himself in front of the church. Secondly, we see that Paul is a believer kept low so that only God may be exalted. He's a believer kept low so that only God may be exalted. A great lesson for us there. False teachers speak of being raised higher and higher and higher. Onward and upward they go to ever greater things. More power, more success, more glory, more faith, more answers to prayer. Another hurdle overcome and another and another. Look at what the Lord is doing. And sometimes with some false teachers, more fame, more money, more acclaim. All said to be the evidence of God's blessing on their ministry. What does God do for Paul? He brings into his life something that will keep him down. 
hold him low. He's had to endure for years this great burden. He's been afflicted with a constant trial that has prevented him from getting carried away with himself in ministry. He's persistently weighed down by this affliction which holds him in check. It saps his energy. It tries his patience. It places severe limitations upon him. It exhausts him emotionally. It makes everything a struggle. He's pleaded with God to remove it three times. And God said, no, no, no miraculous healing, no miraculous delivery, no new experience of which to boast. Get on with it, God says, get on with it and my grace will be sufficient for you. You'll be able to endure it and in your weakness you will know my strength. And that's the promise that Paul received. And that's the promise in which Paul lived and ministered and worked. And it's interesting to note, isn't it? It's a work of Satan that God permits to plague Paul's life. And it's such a painful irritant to him that it prevents him from becoming exalted in the glow of his own reputation. Now, what this thorn in the side was, we simply don't know. There have been gallons of ink poured out on paper by men suggesting that they've worked out what this thorn in the flesh was. Some kind of physical ailment is most likely, but we just don't know. Whatever it was, it accomplished the purpose for which God gave it. And that's the important thing. It came from God. It came for a reason, and that reason was accomplished. That's the important thing to grasp. And God brought into Paul's life something to keep him low so that only God may be raised. Because that's the Christian life. And through this, Paul has learned to say, I'd rather continue with it in weakness if it means that God can continue to do his work through me. It's a remarkable testimony. But actually, it's the kind of thing that every Christian man or woman ought to be able to say, I'd rather continue with it if it means that God can continue to do his work. Great lesson for us here. And how very different to the kind of messages that some will teach you. That in Christ you'll only know every victory over every hurdle as you go higher and higher and higher. But Paul is kept low. That God might be the one who's raised higher and higher and higher. That burden stays, says God to Paul. Because as you persevere under the burden, that's when I display my strength. Okay, says Paul, let's go. 
Final point. A pattern for all believers to follow. It's a pattern for all believers to follow. Now, the default position in the world in which we live is to try and eliminate anything and everything that might be detrimental to living a happy, comfortable, long, prosperous, successful life. You just get rid of everything that gets in the way. Which is why, for example, so many of the adverts on your TV screens are to do with things like health and appearance and leisure and holidays and consumer goods and wealth and so on and so on. Because as these things are acquired and amassed in your life, and as you experience, then all the negative things get pushed out of the way and life will be fantastic. And when it comes to difficulties and distresses and disappointments and illnesses and afflictions, you do everything you can to either eliminate them or to just minimise them as much as you possibly can. Just get them out the way. So if I can surround myself with everything that's favourable, favourable circumstances, favourable experiences and relationships, a favourable career, a favourable income, favourable bank balance and all the rest of it, a favourable environment that's pleasant and comfortable and nice, then everything will bode well for a long and happy life. That's how the world thinks. And in the midst of culture like that, sometimes Christians start to make all those kinds of things their priorities too. Don't we? Should it not be the case? This is the question. Should it not be the case that all of us ought to be able to repeat verse 10 and mean it? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. All the things that naturally within us we shy away from. All the things that naturally we will do everything to avoid. Can we, like Paul, say, I take pleasure in these things for Christ's sake? That's the important phrase as well. Not, it's not something morbid within me. It's for Christ that I'm prepared to do this. Because while I remain weak, I will know the Lord's strength. But while I'm trying to make myself strong in the world... I'm going to be missing out on these spiritual blessings. Paul is an example for us, you see, of a Christian who's come to terms with what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To live his life for Christ's sake and not to live his life for his own sake. Now, when he says he takes pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and so forth, he's not suggesting that he's embraced this kind of warped notion that such things can actually be enjoyable and then he laughs and smiles through them all. He talks about 
taking pleasure in distress. Now, distress can only be distress if it's distressing. Otherwise, it's not distress. So he's not suggesting somehow that these are all enjoyable things. Otherwise, it wouldn't be distress, would it? Distress has to be distressing to call it distress. And we remember back to some of the things that he can recall in chapter 11. They were painful, horrible things. They were horrendous things that he'd endured. What he's saying is this. He has learned how to embrace and accept these things as being a necessary part of his Christian service. Because there is a greater benefit to be had in and through those things which is to know the strengthening hand of God in your life, in all of your weakness. He thanks God for these things because he knows that it's the kind of opportunity that God will use to move and to fulfill his purposes through him. And that's Paul's great desire, that God would continue to be at work, that God would continue to use him. And it's when we're weak that God shows his mighty hand. It's in our weakness. It's through our weakness that we will find our strength in God. And it's when we're truly finding our strength in God that God's work really gets done.